good morning. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Happy Lord's Day. Um, we are in the, a series in the Ten Commandments, and today we, uh, we're at the last commandment. I mean, I don't, even know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Nothing else to tell you all that the Lord said, do this. I'll, I have to make something up, right? I shouldn't do that. All right, open your Bibles to Exodus 20. We're going to read this passage uh, reflecting the Ten Commandments for the last time, probably for a while. And just to remind us of what God has said, we're going to read all 17 verses, Exodus 20, um, verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there uh, are a couple of Bibles underneath the chair down the center column of seats, and you're welcome to grab that Bible, use it as we're working through the Scripture today. And uh, if you don't have one, you can keep it. Uh, we're going to be referring to our Bibles a little bit today. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. We're going to read these out loud together, and you're welcome to cheat and, and look at the screen. Here we go. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for this beautiful, sun-brightened uh, sun, uh, day that you have given us. Uh, we, your people, uh, we just rejoice in who you are, but uh, the fact that you, uh, you call us your own and you welcome us into uh, your family as, as your children. Lord, today, as we uh, take on this last of the Ten Commandments, uh, we are reminded that you invite us into relationship with you. And it's not a, a relationship built on rules, but, uh, but Lord, you do lay down just the, uh, the basis of the relationship. And so, uh, Lord, help us to see uh, these commands today, particularly this this uh, this tenth one that we don't consider often, and, and definitely don't consider it to be sin. Uh, help us to see, uh, even in this, how you're welcoming us, beckoning us into relationship 
uh, with yourself. And then, God, we pray that you would bring us into the light, the light of your law. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to wrap up our series today. And uh, we do that with the Ten Commandments, uh, do not covet. This is an interesting command uh, in that many of us don't take it very seriously. I mean, I mean, think about it. How often have you used the word covet? I mean, anybody here used that word in the last week? All right, so my wife back there <laughs> raising her hand, but she, that's only because she asked me what I was preaching on. <laughs> All right, so I, I was thinking of ways that I've used this word, just like not recently, but in the past. And I, 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 two scenarios. So uh, perhaps you're talking to a friend, you're going through a, just a difficult time spiritually, and you might tell a, a close friend of yours, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just struggling in this area. I covet your prayers. We say, you know, we use the word covet like that. And in that sense, you're, you're earnestly desire that someone would, would lend themselves to pray for you. And so to covet in that sense is, is okay, right? I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, I thought of another instance. Uh, so two of my favorite people that go to this church are, are, are well-dressed, like, like shoe people. No, not, not you. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so check it out. Um, Justin Simmons, who's... Who's, I don't, he's not on the soundboard anymore. Who's, who's running the sound? So Justin is a well-dressed man. And uh, I compliment Justin on how he looks almost every week. But Justin is a well-shoed man. He's a shoe man. I, uh, actually, him and Dre. Dre Collins are shoe people. And a couple times, I've complimented them on their shoes and was like, man, those are some nice shoes. And what I'm thinking in my mind is like, man, I covet those shoes. Which, is, which means like, I really like how they look on you, but I really appreciate how they would look on me better. <laughs> I, really, I really, really want those shoes. Uh, another another uh, instance, um, the men were at Panera yesterday uh, for our monthly men's breakfast, and one of Nick's friends comes over from work, and this guy's groomed this nine, I mean, he's got one of the best beards I've seen in a long time, even better than like Will, who not here, he's on, honey, on his honeymoon. And so... The guy leaves after, you know, a little bit of chit-chat, and I look over next like, that was a nice beard. You know, I, I can barely do this, and I've only just started to do this, but if I were able to and really wanted to grow a beard, I would want it to look just like that guy's beard looked. And in a sense, I was like, I was coveting his beard. And that, you know, that sounds a little messed up, right? But, I mean, it is what it is. So here's the thing. If we're honest, um... We know that coveting is a sin because the Bible tells us so. Perhaps you've had a parent that's, that's reminded you, I mean, you're not supposed to, to covet. But the, for most of us, even Christians, although we know it's a sin, we don't treat it like a sin. Um, when was the last time you felt guilty about coveting something? Probably seldom to never. I mean, we don't think about, uh, that doesn't register high on our conviction meter. And I think the reason why coveting doesn't impress us, maybe like some of these other commands, is we don't really know what God is saying when he tells us not to covet. So I got one goal for us today, that we would learn what God means when he says, do not covet. And really like we've done with the rest of these commands, we sort of get to the depth of it, because the, co- the, the, the purpose of these commands is not just the, the surface follow the rule. God is getting at our heart, and he wants us to bring, you know, he wants to bring us into the light 
of his law, which is really all about relationships. So let's ask ourselves, ask the Bible rather, what does it mean to covet? Here's a definition. To covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker. I mean, that's a, that's a nice word right there. It means desire. To hanker after something that belongs to someone else. When we covet, uh, we covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that's not rightfully ours. And chances are everybody in this room have done that from the least to the, the oldest of us. Coveting was behind the very first sin. God made the world. He set Adam and Eve in this pristine environment called the Garden of Eden. And, uh, and if you think about it, Adam and Eve had the privilege of doing anything they wanted, almost anything they wanted. They were the vice regents of all of, of this perfection that God had created in the Garden of Eden. And all that existed was in harmony with each other. Nature in harmony with the animal life, uh, animal life in harmony with uh, human beings, the, the first two people on the planet, those two people in harmony with God. I mean, they got to walk and talk with God. God told Adam and Eve to do to not do one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And guess what? I mean, Eve coveted the fruit from that tree. Out of all the trees, out of all the bushes, out of all the vines, you know, the nuts, whatever else they ate, they weren't eating animals at that point, poor guys. But of all the things that she could have eaten, and I shouldn't just say she, because Adam, you know, the passive leader was right there beside her looking on. You're going to eat it? You're going to eat it? You're going to eat it? And she did. She wanted that one. Eve wanted more, and really that's how coveting, coveting works. God wasn't enough for her. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but we can assume it from, from the text. She did what God said not to do. Satan enticed her to believe something that God had not said, and she coveted the thing that God told her that she should not lend herself to. She didn't trust God for what he had already given her, and so she longed for other things. Coveting also means strong desire. That really is what Eve had. The Greek word uh, that the New Testament uses several times in Paul's writing, in Peter's writing, in the Apostle John's writing, in the Apostle James, Jesus' half-brother's writing, is epithumia. Epithumia. It means strong desire. Really, it means more than that. It means craving. It's a, di- a desire that drives us. It's a, des- it's a desire after something. We feel like we just have to have it, something that we esteem to be essential for us, uh, to be happy, to be satisfied, such that you can't live without it. Here's a third thing that, uh, that uh, coveting means. Coveting is ungodly desire. That's what epithemia gets at. It doesn't mean that the thing that you want itself is ungodly, but your desire, your ungodly desire for it really elevates it to a level where it's driving you and making you do some crazy things. It becomes the object of your desire. So it's an ungodly desire for something you do not have that's fueled by a dissatisfaction for what you do have. One famous writer said this, to covet is to long for more than is enough. It's like having food on your plate that's going to satisfy you. You know, all those little small portions that we eat, a little bit of mashed potatoes, a little bit of uh, meatloaf, a little bit of greens. And it's like, that ain't enough. I need something. I'm going to pour on some, some more on top of that. 
So what we're doing when we covet is we fixate on what we don't have and assume that in it, when we get it, if we get it, that it's going to provide lasting joy, happiness, and satisfaction. And the thing I don't have but so desperately want, whether it's someone, some possession, something, maybe even a position, in that thing I find life and happiness. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is it that takes up our thoughts. That's how we, I mean, how do you know when you're coveting, how, if you're coveting? What takes up your thoughts? What dominates your thinking? What do you fixate on during the day? What is the passion that you have that works its way out in all the things that you do in life? What are you working towards uh, your efforts? What consumes you more? Perhaps behind some of those things is, uh, is the sin of coveting. And don't fear, you're not alone. We all covet. All of us in this room are, are coveting something. Perhaps we don't see the danger in it, but I think all of us, I know all of us here covet something. And so let me tell you a story from the scriptures that uh, sort of explains what this coveting looks like in, in real time. Uh, turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel 13. Uh, the greater portion of 2 Samuel covers the, the life of David, the David's narrative. Three weeks ago, we were looking at the Eighth Commandment, um, do not commit adultery, and we looked at 2 Samuel 11 through 12, which was the story of, of David and, and Bathsheba. And so uh, this just picks up right where that left off in the life of David. And we're going to see really... Uh, the, the ramification of David in his sin and how it sort of um, shows up in the rest of his family. And so this narrative, although it's part of David's narrative, it's really about his son Amnon and his daughter Tamar. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to give you a snapshot of what's going to happen in the text here, and then I'm, we're going to read the text together, and then I'm going to pull out three, uh, um, three lessons that I think that we see here of, of coveting from the text. And so David's oldest son's uh, name is, is Amnon. That's a cool name to have, right? right? Name your kid, Amnon. Um, and he has a daughter, Tamar. So technically, they are brother and sister. The only common denominator is the father. They both have different mothers. And of course, that sounds a little... West Virginia, Tennessee, backwoods kind of stuff, and it is in our day. But back then, uh, God allowed it, okay? So David had multiple wives, and uh, here you got a son and a daughter who, um, who for, you know, the son likes the daughter, and he goes for her. Um, so what happens is Amnon really likes his sister. More than that, he covets her. And so one of his friends, John Adab, who actually is his cousin, like third or fifth cousin, I know, it's incestuous. So John Adab can see like uh, Amnon like burning on the inside. And he comes to him one day, he says, hey, you're the son of the king. You can actually get anything that you want. Why is it that you're so humdrum about life? And then Amnon basically tells him, hey, I love my sister Tamar. And I know I'll never get her. And so the text is going to tell us Jonadab is a schemer. I mean, he's like crafty. And so Jonadab says like, well, fake, fake that you're ill. Your dad's going to come check you out and then ask for your sister to come feed you something and then just take her. I mean, she's yours, right? You're the king's son. And it turns out 
he does that. He does what his cousin Jonadab uh, says to do. David sends Tamar in. Tamar comes, brings him some nice victuals. He pretends like he cast the victuals aside, didn't even eat them, and he rapes his sister. Um, obviously, that's not a good thing. Uh, Tamar flees uh, to her older brother, Absalom, and Absalom, in vengeance, has Amnon killed. That's the story of Amnon and Tamar. That's like a dreary story, isn't it? All because of covenant. So let's look at a few verses. 2 Samuel 13. Uh, that's on page 317 in my Bible. I don't know if that's going to help you. Uh, you guys look up in the table of contents in your Bible. This is not going to be on the screen, so you're going to have to look at your text, your Bible, uh, to get it. I'm going to read the first six verses. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. They were cousins. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard this morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me the bread to eat and prepare the food that is uh, in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see Amnon, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And so the, I think the first thing that we see in a text here in this story is that coveting can make you ill with desire. And that really is what happened to, uh, to Amnon. Amnon wants Tamar so badly that he's made himself ill. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever desired something so much that it just like churned inside of you. You couldn't think of anything else. You didn't want to eat. You're just like, I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. It might have, might not have been a person. It might have been a thing. It might have been some position. It might have been just, you know what? I deserve this. I need it. I want it. I'm, I'm, I've got to have it. That's what was going on in Amnon on his insides, but really that was what was going on in his heart. To, to want something so badly that it makes you sick. How about this? You're sick with worry that you might, that you want something, but you never, you, you think that, man, I might not ever get this. Or how about this? You find yourself envying what other people have. And it's something that you would say to yourself, I've just got to have that. That's coveting. You know, we also give, we, we give this, this idea of coveting um, pretty names, but it's still coveting nonetheless. Sometimes we call it uh, goals. Sometimes we call them dreams. Sometimes we call them needs, or we say, this is my destiny. I, I, like, I, I've got to pursue this because this is what God has, he's, he, this is the journey he has me on. Sometimes we just say, you know, this is my deepest longing. But more than likely, it's, it's a craving, it's a yearning, it's epithemia, it's, it's this ungodly desire in us that presses us to try and get something, it's coveting. It would be fair to say not all selfish desires are, are covetous. God gives us desires, healthy desires, just to help us live life. Our desire for food reminds us to eat. I mean, that's a good desire, right? We're going to eat some good food this afternoon. 
our desire to do something useful motivates to, to go to work and to labor uh, for all that's ours. Our desire for friendship draws us into community with other people. Our desires for intimacy, particularly sexual intimacy, may drive us to, to get married. And so desire isn't bad. Here, but here's, here's where it crosses the line. When, when you can't imagine being happy without whatever that desire is, call it a goal, a dream, a destiny, if you, can't live, if you can't think of life without it, then that thing, even that good thing, has become a God to you. And then what is that? That's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. It's, it's coveting. But more than that, go all the way back nine weeks ago. It's a violation of the First Commandment. You have taken a good thing and made it a God thing. You've elevated it above the God of all of the earth, and it has become idolatry. And so we covet. We covet what we don't have thinking that we can't be happy without a certain thing. We covet what we already have when the thought of not having something or losing it worries you, I mean, like sick. For Amnon, that was Tamar. He worried himself sick over a woman, over his sister. We covet relationships. Sometimes if uh, a single person will, I mean, just don't you just, you know, something in them wants to get married so much that they covet every married relationship that they see. Uh, it also works the opposite. Sometimes if we're married, we covet the freedom of single people, or we might covet someone else's spouse, husband, or wife if we think that relationship is better. And, I mean, we, we want a relationship like that. I mean, I, I want that. Maybe if I just dumped my, dumped my spouse and had that one, life would go well. For many of us, um, most of our coveting centers around money. I mean, this that money thing just like grabs hold of us and it won't let go. Either you want more money or you can't you see yourself as being happy without, without what you have. Or definitely you couldn't see yourself as being happy if you made less money. Credit card debt is often a sure sign of coveting. Not always, but definitely a lot of times, because in order to maintain or have the lifestyle that you think you deserve, that you want, you've got to spend money that you don't have to get there. Uh, I think in many ways, credit cards should also should be called coveting cards. I mean, do you think that if, if we call a credit card a coveting card, I think half of us wouldn't get them. I mean, who wants to like, hey, man, you're going to pay this with uh, with your debit card or your, your coveting card? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use my coveting card today. <laughs> Here's another thing. A lack of generosity, stinginess is a sign of covetousness. Um, if you believe that money is the way that, uh, that you'll get all the things that you really want in life, then, um, then probably you're coveting. Um, and if you're... Uh, if you're stingy with your money, and you know, even if you give, you're going to give sparingly, you're going to give grudgingly. I would say if you're worried uh, excessively about your financial future, then that's probably something about covening that's in your heart um, that you're dealing with. And like Amnon, you may worry about that so much that it makes you sick. So what is it that you covet? We owe it to ourselves to ask us those questions really about all of life. The people that surround us, the things that we have, the, the dreams, the goals, the desires that we have, are those just true desires or are they epithemia? Are, are they ungodly desires that lend to 
to coveting. When we look at the commandment, Exodus 20, 17, look what it says. It mentions various forms of property, such as houses, servants, livestock, us modern humans. I mean, that stuff doesn't move us unless you live on a farm, right? There's a couple of y'all that grew up on a farm. That stuff might excite you still. Probably not, right? I mean, we don't worry about that stuff, but the, the commandment, I mean, that doesn't, make, that doesn't make the commandment go away. We covet things like bigger houses, faster cars, better entertainment. We covet clothes with like designer, uh, I'm, I'm making the M-K <laughs> sign. I've got a pair of pants and a shirt. I don't have a pocketbook yet, that, this M-K. I don't want one of those. I don't know any other designer label stuff, but it, that, that, that MK one is popular because I see it all around the place, even here. Uh, we covet appliances with more features. I mean, we, were, we moved recently, like, went to a kitchen that was better equipped, more modern than the one we had at our townhouse. Like, <gasps> look, it's a gas stove. <gasps> look, the water flows from the refrigerator. You don't have to actually make ice yourself. Isn't that crazy? We covet stuff like that. We, we, we covet gadgets like smartphones and tablets, trinkets that Amazon Prime delivers right to our door. Amazon Prime is like the Antichrist. <laughs> you love them, but you hate them at the same time. We covet millions of other trivial products. Um, the Ten Commandments also mentions that we should not cover our neighbor's wife, and this brings up the area of, of, of sexuality. It's a reminder that sex can be one of our most unruly desires. Uh, whenever you engage in sexual fantasy, uh, you are being guilty of uh, really a kind of coveting. You're feeding a sinful desire that you have to gratify yourself. You're demanding that you be gratified, coveting somebody else's body or even the thought of that. And so if you fall prey to any of these, and of course the list is exhaustive. I've only covered a couple of things. You might be a coveter, epithemia, ungodly desire, driving, controlling desires for something that you can't live without. So what is that for you? For Amnon, it was naked Tamar. Look at how the story develops. Verse 7, then David sent home to Tamar saying, go home to your brother Amnon's house and prepare Food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She must have been a good cooker. Baker. Cooker or baker? Which one is it? All right. Thank you. I'm from North Carolina. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him and he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So apparently there were servants in the room, and he wanted to make he wanted to get rid of all that stuff so he could do what he wanted to do. So everyone went out from him. Verse ten. Then Amnon said to Tamar, "Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand." And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, "Come lie with me, my sister." She answered him, no, my brother, don't violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he'll not withhold me from you. Verse 14, but, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And so Amnon here does 
um, not only something that's wrong, he does something that's heinous. I mean, it was heinous then. Did you, see, did you hear Tamar? She's like, all right, don't do this because you're going to shame me. I'm a virgin and everyone will know. But, but don't, don't do it because of me. Don't do it because of you because you're not going to get away with this. You, you cannot do this and it not be known. And then she gives him a third way out. She's like, all right, so you're the son of the king. And we're, I mean, we're basically distant cousins, like fourth or fifth, you know, level cousins. If you ask your father, David, for anything, I mean, why would he withhold it from you? I mean, he does what he wants to do. Here's the second thing I think we see from the text. Coveting can drive you to make bad decisions. I mean, isn't this, I mean, this was just like sick what Amnon did. It was not only a bad decision, but here's covetous, covetousness can steer you in the wrong direction. I think that's what we see here. Think of it this way. Uh, some people will never really follow Jesus because, I mean, they love their money too much. I think of the, the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man in Matthew 19. Um, he comes to Jesus and says, hey, Lord, um, Master, uh, what is the way to eternal life? How do I gain it? And Jesus tells him, follow the commandments. And guess what he says? He's like, I've done that. I've done that since my youth. Give me something else. And Jesus says, all right, here it is. Get rid of all you got. Okay? Give all of your possessions to the poor. And so the rich young man lowered his head, turned his back, and he walked away from Jesus. Why? Because he was very rich. And, and he, was, he was tied to his money. Some Christians don't give, not because they can't, but their money is their lifeblood. They can't let go of it. Some people crave success and recognition to the point that, I mean, it's killing them on the inside. They're yearning for it, churning for it, doing everything they can to labor for it. Uh, here's uh, something for young people. Many young girls make relationship decisions because they covet the attention of a guy. Hear that, young ladies? Some people crave the approval of other people so much that they do really dumb things just to pee, just to, so people think they're cool. High school, even college. They're obsessed about what people think about them, and they'll do anything to be accepted by them, to be thought of as cool. And in a sense, that's coveting. Coveting uh, relationships with other people or coveting a relationship. So, so here's what we learned so far. Coveting can make us ill desire. Coveting can drive us to make bad decisions, but here's where the story gets worse. Let's finish it out. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her, hated Tamar, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong is sending me away. It's greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she had wore. And she laid her hand on his head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. 
But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Here's the third thing that we learn uh, from our text. When you get what you covet, it's bound to disappoint. Isn't that sad? You, you yearn, you've churned, you've labored, you work hard with this desire, this incestuous desire. You get it, and it disappoints you. And I think that's what coveting does. British author C.S. Lewis says this. He says there's two kind of unhappy people in the world. There are those who realize that they're never going to have what they most want, and so they give up. They don't, it doesn't leave them. It leads them to a bitter life. Okay, they become cranky. They get cynical. But here's a second kind of, kind of person. It's the unhappy person who gets exactly what they're seeking in life, and it leaves them wanting more. I think most of us fit neatly right between the two of those. There's all these things that we want, we want, we want, we want, we want. And I think for 60% of us, we never get exactly what we want. And so we're still trying to get it, trying to get it, trying to get it, doing everything that we can to get it. And then there's this other 40% that we actually work hard to get something. Hopefully by honest means, we get it and we figure out, oh my gosh, I got it. And life is no different. In the case of Amnon, he got what he wanted, and he began to hate it. And I, I got, the text doesn't tell us why. Um, I've got uh, a suspicion. Um, he figured, you know, just like the rest of us, he figured out the thing that he wanted so bad uh, wasn't going to make him a different person. It wasn't going to make him as happy as he wanted to be, as satisfied as he wanted to be, even his sister but, but here's, the, here's the, the real thing, I think, that God is trying to get us at. Uh, he shouldn't have had it in the first place. Somewhere in his heart, he knew, you know what? That wasn't mine to have. I wasn't supposed to have my sister. And now I've covered it all these years for her, and it's led to this. It's led to ruin. What happened to Ab, um, Amnon? I mean, his brother waited two years to execute vengeance. And Absalom didn't kill him himself. He created this environment where he had a party, invited all of his siblings, and he had one of his servants I mean, kill Amnon. So all that coveting, Amnon gets what he wants, and eventually he loses it all. He loses it because his brother kills him, kills him to death. I think what the Tenth Commandment highlights is that in all of us, there's this discontentedness in our hearts. So much uh, of our frustration in life comes from wanting things that God hasn't given us. Did you hear that? We, I mean, we want a lot of things that God has not given us and has no intention of giving us. In our covetous desire, we concentrate on what we don't have rather on what we do have. And then we say, what, what only, uh, if only, what if? And we do that about all these different kinds of things. If I only had this possession, if I only had this gadget, if I only made a little bit more money, if I only lived in a bigger house. And once we start thinking like this, I mean, it's this a snowball effect. And then everything gets insatiated with, with this idea of I, I want more and there's no end to our 
our discontent. And I think that spills over into the other parts of life. It can extend to physical attributes. I mean, I, man, that, he's got a nice physique. I mean, he's working out. I want that too. Man, I want six-pack abs instead of my one, <laughs> my one ab. <laughs> yeah. I want her boot camp, boot camp body. I, want, I was going to say something else. I didn't say that. <laughs> Edit. I think it can even extend in the church. We can covet the gifts that other people. I mean, I want to sing like that. I want to play violin like Jonathan does. You know, I want to sing like Abby does. I, want to, I, just want, I just want to like stand up and just like strum my guitar and just be going for it. And we think if God could only, if I could only do that, God would use me more than he's using me now. And I think we fool ourselves. And again, that's, that's coveting. Here's the unique thing about the 10th commandment. All the other commandments, in a sense, uh, are after externals first before it, before it approaches our internal. The 10th commandment, it goes right for the heart. It's like, all right, so check it out. You getting what you want is not going to make you better, okay? It goes for our hearts, right for our hearts. The truth is, if God wanted you to have more right now, you'd have it. I mean, doesn't that hurt sometimes? Think about that. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify him, he would provide it. If we were ready for the job or ministry that we want, God would put us into it. If we're supposed to be in a different situation in life, we would be in it. I think that's true. Those are hard words. Those are hard words for even me to say to myself. If I think about, like, well, Lord, I want my church to be like a thousand people. I want to be meeting in that auditorium over there. Sound system booming, light show. I don't want a light show. <laughs> Maybe a little smoke to provide ambiance for the... For the <laughs> we think like that, don't we? If we're supposed to be in a different situation in life, I think we would be in it because God would help us to get there. Instead, instead of saying, if only this, if only that, God calls us to glorify him to the fullest right now, right where we are, wherever the situation that, that we're in. I think that's the message of, of, of this commandment. But I've got more for you. Here's the word that, you know, what's the positive side of this commandment? It says don't covet, but what's the positive side? It says we're supposed to live contented lives. We're supposed to live with contentment. Um, and the Bible corroborates that. First Timothy 6 says this, godliness with contentment is, is great gain. The, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your lives free from the love of money. Why? Because money is the thing that traps us up the most. And be content with what you have. Here's what contentment means. It means wanting what God wants for you rather than what you want for you. This is worthy of all of us saying together. Say this, say this with me. Contentment means wanting what God wants for you rather than what you want for you. I think that's healing for you to say that. Maybe that might need to be your positive, I'm not trying to leave a positive thought, but that, I mean, that's like a gospel confession for most of us. Not wanting what I want, but wanting what God wants. Think about if we just like would live like that. I think the secret to enjoying this kind of contentment is being so satisfied with the God that we know and serve that we're able to accept whatever he has for us. And, and, and this is true also, 
we can also accept what he's not provided for us. And that's sometimes hard because I want what I want. And I want God to provide what I want. Here's another way of thinking about this. Covenant is a theological issue. Theology being, you know, me making sense of God. Sometimes uh, the God in my head is a God that wants to, I mean, that, that I just pray a prayer. I live a perfect life, or at least I try to. You know, my kids are all squeaky. Everything in my life is right, and God is supposed to give me what I want, right? That's bad theology. God reveals himself in Scripture. And so the God that we see in Scripture is the God that is. And the God that is, is not a God that's just going to give you everything you want. Why? Because it makes you a God. I love Psalm 73, and it gets at me in this area of covetousness, and hopefully I can explain it really quickly. Psalm 73, the, the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Are there, is there nothing on, and there's nothing on earth I desire uh, besides you. This, this psalm is special. It should be special for you. It's special for me because the psalmist was going through hell. He was not having a bad day. He was not having a bad life. Um, he was reflecting on how things were, and just like his enemies were succeeding, they were getting fat off the land. They were being successful over, over the good people. And the psalmist was like, Lord, it looks like the bad people are winning. I mean, where are you when I need you? I'm just asking you for simple things, and it doesn't seem like you're showing up. But then halfway through Psalm 73, he says these words. So it's not going to be on the screen. Psalm 73, verse 16. He said, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed somehow a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned therein. What did he do? He got in the presence of God, and God showed him something different. And so he goes on to say these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire but you. My, my heart and my strength may fail, but God is the, the strength of my life and my portion forever. He got in the presence of God, and it changed his thinking. It didn't change the situation. It, it still seemed like the enemy was, was succeeding, but it changed his perspective on life such that he could stop coveting for a good end. It's like, Lord, give me your end, not just the end that's in my head. Paul corroborates this as well. Philippians 4, 11, For I've learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In, every, in any and every situation, circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I mean, Paul went through some stuff, right? I mean, he, uh, he was the apostle of apostles, and God when he commissioned him, told him, it's like, all right, so you're going to suffer for my sake. And, and then Paul lived that out. And, and through Paul, we learn that contentment is not circumstantial. It doesn't depend on your situation for you to be happy or satisfied in life. Uh, one verse later, Paul would say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what's special about this verse? Paul is in prison when he's writing that. He's like, what? And Philippians, the theme of it is joy. So Paul is writing to these people, and he's still, you know, there's joy in the Lord, not in your circumstance, not in your situation. You got to be tapped into the Lord. This is what Paul is saying to us God is all we need. And that sounds trite, doesn't it? Like when you're going through something, it's like, can you give me something else? <laughs> 
God is all we need, and therefore we ought, uh, he is who we ought to desire. Better said, Jesus is all we really need. Here's the thing. God doesn't offer us Jesus so that we have a better way of getting what we want. God offers us Jesus, and then he says, even if you don't realize it, Jesus really is all that you need. Now, some of you here, I mean, life's not easy. I know a few of y'all. And, uh, and you would say, you know what? I, 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 you can say God is all I need. I, I don't really realize that. I got bills to pay. I can't pay my bills with a Bible, ver- Bible verse. Like, I mean, you can't. I'm single. I don't want to be. I like to eat. I don't have any money. I got some needs. So what do I do? I think here's the lesson that God teaches us about coveting. And I'm going to go back and tell you another story. So a couple of chapters before Exodus 20, God has just delivered Israel out of slavery. 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea, miraculous kind of deliverance. He gets them out. They got a little stretch of, of willingness to go through before they get to Exodus 20, Mount Sinai, so God can give them the demands of the relationship and that he can, they can go and be his people. He'll be their God. They live in the promised land. But before they got there, I mean, it was rough. So, they're, I mean, they're, they're walking, they're walking, they're walking. They have nothing but the, you know, the clothes on their backs. And pretty soon they start complaining. Like, Lord, we're thirsty. Lord, we're hungry. And so the, the Israelites complain to Moses. Moses complained to God. And amazingly, God responds. He tells Moses, all right, strike that rock. I'm going to send some water to quench your thirst. And then he causes manna to fall from the ground, manna this dew-like substance that's like a wafer that they end up using as bread. He caused quail to come, quail to come at night to give them meat to eat. And so we learn from the story of, of, of God and the wilderness and manna that God provides for our needs. We express our need to God, and he will give us what we need. Why does he give us what we need? Because he created us. He knows that we need it. You got bills. You got desires, you got goals, you got dreams. God sees you. He created you. He knows you. And he might not give it to you all like you want it, but he's, he is going to take care of you. Do you trust the Lord to meet the, the, need, the real needs that you have? But here's a second lesson from manna. Fast forward to the New Testament. We went through the book of John in a year, right? So Jesus, John 5 crosses the water. He, he, he feeds 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. He crosses the water. He comes uh, to a mountain, and all these people are following him because they just, I mean, well, what's he going to do next? What's the next miracle? And Jesus, he wants to thin the crowd out, so he starts talking some very, some very crazy stuff. He's like, to be my friend, to be hang out with me, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he brings up this story about the manna, and this is what he says. He's like, you know what? When, manna, when God gave Israel the manna in the, in the wilderness, that was a picture of me. He's like, you guys are following me because you're just hungry. You want to see what the next miracle is. But don't you know, that was a picture of me. I'm the bread of life from heaven that will satisfy your souls. And what he, what he says when he's saying that, what he means is sometimes you can do without physical bread. God has called us sometimes to just do without. It doesn't mean that you enjoy it. It doesn't mean that those are happy times for you. But God's presence can be 
so satisfying that sometimes you can stay satisfied in God even when your body is craving physical bread. Think of Jesus in the he gets commissioned, gets baptized. He goes in the wilderness, fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan comes to him. First words out of Satan's mouth is, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. What does Jesus do? He says, God does not, God says, um, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God sustained Jesus by giving him what he needed. Just the presence of of God was with Jesus to sustain him through that circumstance. And so let me close this by, by just trying to bring this together. I think if your finances are tight, you might covet you know, money. If you've got problems in your body, then it's you, you covet healing. And sometimes those things are okay, but I think what we learn through this story, but most of what we learn through Jesus, is that sometimes God calls us to fast, to, you know, to do without the very thing that we want so that God can give us the very thing that we need, himself to satisfy us. God invites you to feast on him where you can say, you know, God, you're good. I got some needs, but you're better to me. You're better, you're better to me than, than money. You're better to me than food. You're better to me than romance or children or good health or prosperity or friendship or success. Lord, help me to get to a point where you are enough. Help me to get to a point where I don't covet, but I trust. I trust you that through circumstance, through situation, you are enough and you'll get me through. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That you, uh, you love us enough to tell us when we're violating uh, the, the terms of the relationship that you, that you invite us into. And this is one of those commands that sometimes we just ignore. But, um, Lord, as we examine our own lives, there are so many things that lend to us coveting. Not even, not in good ways. Lord, we want stuff that you really don't want us to have. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to continue to examine our hearts. That, that really is what this is. This is a heart issue. Help us to come to terms with, uh, with how we covet money or how we covet people or how we covet possessions. And, uh, and Lord, uh, change our heart. Change our heart so that... Uh, in our wanting, that we would want you more than we want stuff. And that will require some heart transformation. Lord Jesus, only you can do that. Send us the Holy Spirit. Make us aware of our sin. Bring us to a point that we would repent of those ways that we are going against the very things that you've said. Uh, Bring us to a point where we would want to ask for forgiveness. And then Lord, heal us. Heal us in our thoughts. Heal us in our hearts and then heal us in our outward actions that we would more reflect who you are and what you've called us to be. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.